0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'm afraid we have to start today's program on a bit of a sad note. The Radio Parallax trading cards, which we've been working so hard on bringing to you and you know, enabling you to purchase by your use of non-fungible tokens, has had to be postponed in the wake of some of the controversy over Donald Trump's efforts along similar lines. We'll have more to say about that in a moment or two. But I'd like to jump uh, at this point to the comments of Andy Borowitz, who noted in a recent edition of the Borowitz Report, Dateline the Bahamas, that people around the world have been flabbergasted to learn that a man who created a business based on imaginary money might be a fraud. In interviews spanning the globe, respondents expressed shock and disbelief that a firm offering customers wealth by turning their actual money into pretend money could be anything but legitimate. And maybe we're being a little hard on Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried, but when I read in The Economist in their December 10th edition that the founder of FTX, known as SBF, will testify to Congress, said the magazine, about the collapse of his crypto exchange, but that he hadn't finished reviewing the events that led to its bankruptcy and might not be ready to attend a hearing that was scheduled for December 13th. Well, since then, SBF has been arrested in the Bahamas, so we're pretty sure that he's going to meet his future obligations to testify. Although we're not at all sure but that when he does, he will have by that point finished reviewing the events that led to his downfall. Axios had noted a few weeks ago that FBF's stated dream, and that of most other crypto entrepreneurs, was for the industry to improve upon and supplant the world's existing financial infrastructure. In fact, said Axios, behind the scenes, it was engaging in much the same grift and leverage risk-taking that preceded the 2008 financial crisis. Which leads us to a very interesting book yours truly is perusing titled Records. It came out a few years ago. The author is Aaron Glantz. was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. I like the subtitle of the book, which is How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnates, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists Suckered Millions Out of Their Homes and Demolished the American Dream. We're not going to have time to say too much about this book today except to note that it is a remarkable collection of anecdotes about how it is people in power, people in Wall Street, people who know the right people, are able to set up a system that benefits them and screws everybody else. I mean, shades of Karl Marx. What amazes me in thumbing through this book is how often these characters, which are supposed to be the paragons of American capitalism, have in fact set up a system of corporate socialism that has the government step in and cover their losses when they supposedly do us all a favor of buying troubled assets. It's a disgusting story and one that frankly doesn't get the play it deserves in the press. Although, you know, books like this are out there, articles are out there. For the most part, I would say this financial chicanery is hiding in plain sight. One of the villains in the piece is the private equity firm Blackstone, And curiously, we interviewed one of the co-founders of Blackstone on this very program back in, I think, 2004. That was Peter G. Peterson. Apparently, Peterson and a man named Stephen Schwartzman founded Blackstone back in the mid-1980s. Both men had started out in Lehman Brothers, which would sort of spectacularly crater circa 2008 during the financial crisis. This book by Glantz mentions that in the 1980s, there was a shakeup at Lehman, and the company's chief executive, one Peter G. Peterson, was forced out. Noted Glantz in the book, like Avril Harriman, Peterson was fantastically well connected. He'd been Secretary of Commerce under President Nixon and knew everybody. Schwartzman proposed they start their own firm, and they called it Blackstone, a pun on Schwartzman's name, Black or Schwartz in German and Peterson's, Stone, or Petros in Greek. Peterson supplied the connections, sending out personal letters to a vast network of potential clients, telling them he would provide a personal touch. Schwartzman provided the guile and extreme work work ethic to get the deals done. The two spent 30 years together buying and selling companies, making themselves fantastically wealthy, often by laying off workers and taking on vast amounts of debt, before unloading the purchased assets to another investor, hopefully at a higher price. This is known as the greater fool theory. On this program, circa 2004, I would, would hasten to uh, remind people, Peterson predicted that the U.S. economy was going to crater in the not-too-distant future, and he was quoting Paul Volcker, his supposed friend, in describing how this was likely to happen. I'm intrigued to learn from this book that uh, Peterson and Schwartzman worked very hard to get around Paul Volcker, who had some very common-sense notions on how it was companies should be reined in from financial chicanery. Anyway, this is a hell of a way to start today's program. I think what we'll do is a bit of housekeeping at this juncture. Some weeks back, we had our language correspondent, Gordon Smith, join us to talk about uh, French phrases that have made their way into the English language. If you were paying attention, dear listener, you noted from that program that it is correctly pronounced coup de grace. To call it a coup de gras would mean that you were hitting somebody with a piece of fat. Mr. Ramon does point out that if it were a sufficiently large piece of fat, it could be a fatal blow. That's true. We do want to add one slight addendum. We neglected on that program to point out something we had intended to point out. It was not, in fact, a French word that had made its way into English, but was the name of a Roman emperor that had made its way into French. Both Gordon and I found it amusing to note that the French still refer to urinals as Vespasians, because wouldn't you know it, when he was emperor of Rome, Vespasian got rich by taxing public urinals. History tells us that his son, who I I believe was probably the future emperor Titus himself, complained to his father that it was an unseemly way to earn a living, or to earn some cash. I guess the emperor doesn't have to earn a living. Vespasian held a coin out in his direction and pointed out it doesn't stink. We were amused to note that The Economist in its December 10th issue had a little piece about French brand names and how French brands are mutilating English as well as their own language. Noted the magazine, a nation forged through a common language which it doggedly strives to defend is taking linguistic mangling to another level. In some instances, French firms are seeking to disguise their national origins. AXA, a French insurer, chose a name that means nothing but can be pronounced in all languages. The magazine cites Luncher, which operates a smart card for meal vouchers. It recently rebranded itself Swile, which they noted to the English ear sounds like a mixture of swill and bile. And apparently a group which owns Buffalo Grill, a restaurant chain, described itself as Un Steakhouse. It notes that the latest trend is to apply this phonetic play to English words which may themselves be unfamiliar, but become even more so in French. New French brands include Easy Peasy, a fashionable chain of spectacles, which to the English ear sounds like Easy Peasy, duh. And then there is Heech, a ride-hailing service that sounds as if a French person is saying Hitch. They conclude by noting all of this as an affront to linguistic purity. The Académie Française, established by Cardinal Richelieu in 1635, still rules on which foreign words are acceptable in the French language. Currently, it disapproves, for example, of millennials in favor of Enfants de Numerique. Apparently, the Academy does not make pronouncements on brand names. And I don't know, maybe they should. We were also hoping in this program to do a follow-up on the story we mentioned about how some canoers were Going to paddle from Easter Island at Rapa Nui to the tiny island of Hokimai, also known as Salas y Gomez. But doggone it, we couldn't find any story that did anything other than talk about how they're about to do this. By now, they should have done this. We will continue to keep our eyes peeled for follow up. There's a lot of talk, which also includes things mentioned in The Economist, about the fact that various psychedelic drugs may may be legalized shortly in many jurisdictions including California. What depressed me about the story was the sidelight item in reading it that MDMA is currently undergoing trials for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and it's believed that this will have a significant role to play in treating and managing that condition. What I find depressing about it was that when I was a medical student back in the Ronald Reagan era, they were talking about MDMA. And where did they see its value? Well, at that time, four decades ago, they saw that it could have great use in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Unfortunately, of course, MDMA became a drug of abuse and, um, Earned the wrath of those authorities in the federal government that want to stamp out drugs everywhere. By the way, are doing a spectacularly great job of doing so. Since I started this rave, I can't resist mentioning that the number one drug that kills Americans every year to the tune of like 500,000 people and has done so for the past generation or two, similar numbers, is Tobacco. A drug which is not only not banned by the federal government, is supported by various programs to keep people farming tobacco in certain jurisdictions like Kentucky. It is as addicting a drug as you could hope for. It kills people in droves, and yet you can buy it in every 7-Eleven in the country. No, we're not saying that, uh, that banishing the drug is going to work. It never has in the past. But it's a sad commentary that for four decades we've been stuck in talking about how MDMA might have some therapeutic value and are finally getting around to maybe, maybe doing something about it. Anyway, we can't, uh, can't avoid mentioning the fact that the January 6th commission, before it uh, gave up its ghost, recommended that Donald Trump face four distinct lines of criminal charges. To this we would add only four. But nevertheless, it's it's pretty clear that uh, there's four solid cases you could make for misbehavior against a former president. The question is, will Merrick Garland act, or is the fix in? I don't know. It certainly was a bad week for Donald Trump this past week, as well a week or two, I guess, as it was revealed that he was um, having dinner. In Mar-a-Lago with anti-Semites including Nick Fuentes, a white supremacist, and Kanye Ye West, who has distinguished himself recently with rants about going DeathCon 3 on the Jews. No, not DEFCON, DeathCon 3. And his dinner companion Fuentes is a Holocaust denier who has endeared himself to the MAGA wing of the GOP by arguing that Christians should have all the power. And he's endeared himself to certain factions of the party by suggesting that we execute lawmakers who voted to certify Joe Biden's 2020 victory. He also thinks we ought to strip women of the right to vote. And evidently, Fuentes and Trump really hit it off. Trump apparently turned to Yeh at one point to say, I really like this guy. He gets me. For his part, Yeh has described himself as a proud anti-Semite. And then there's the trading cards. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to look these up on the internet, dear listener. We encourage you to do so. I'm looking at several uh, versions, which I printed out. We have Trump in the ring of professional wrestling, the World Wrestling Federation, holding up a, um, a championship belt with 45 on it. We have Trump as an astronaut. We have Trump as a Marvel Comics superhero. We have Trump in a cowboy hat wielding a shotgun. And the one everybody seems to like the most, Trump ripping open his business suit to show that underneath he's wearing a superhero outfit as death rays emerge from both eyes. Evidently, Trump sold these items at $99 a pop to 50,000 people and generated $5 million overnight. They are now currently in the secondary market being resold at a higher value as we understand it. Apparently, even Trump loyalist Steve Bannon had to draw the line at the trading cards and said he just he just couldn't do this. Anyway, on a happier note, we would point out that uh, as we are speaking with a microphone, we are pretty much at the winter solstice. These are the shortest days of the year. Although we are happy to note, as we always like to point out, that the sunsets are already coming later. It's only a few minutes, but. You know it does count for something. The reason why the sunsets are not in sync with the length of days has to do with a phenomenon that we'll call the analemma. Which, given that this is radio and we have no pictures to work with, uh, is going to be hopeless to try and explain. That near listener is homework for you to check out if you're so inclined, and, and our guess is you're not. Now as we near the end of the year, uh, we always look forward to Dave Barry's year in review, which evidently is not out yet. That will have to wait, I think, till next week's program, or the one after. We do appreciate the fact that The Economist, which we're relying on very heavily so far in today's show, uh, does like to look back every year at how accurate their predictions had been. Here's their self-assessment. After failing to predict the arrival of one horseman of the apocalypse in 2020, plagues, we failed to spot the approach of another one in 2022, war. We forecast a growing conflict between autocracy and democracy, but did not expect that conflict to manifest as a shooting war in Europe, which broke out in February when Russia invaded Ukraine. They note that the war has been contributing to inflation and that they they missed that story too. Some predictions they made that were nearer the mark, they say, was the fact that China's zero COVID policy hampered growth, but Xi Jinping refused to change course. The magazine said we correctly warned of the danger of a more infectious coronavirus variant and the risk this would pose to China in particular. They correctly predicted Emmanuel Macron's win in France and Jair Bolsonaro's loss in Brazil. Also, that Bong Bong Marcos would prevail in the Philippines. They said they also noted correctly that it would be worth keeping a close eye on SpaceX and its Starlink satellite constellation, which can provide high-speed internet access in isolated locations. Starlink has become vital to the Ukrainian war efforts, raising concerns over the power this grants SpaceX's mercurial boss, Elon Musk, who can turn it off anytime he wants. They concluded by noting that further away in space, NASA smashed its DART probe into a small asteroid and, as expected, successfully changed its orbit with its direct hit. They noted, alas, events back on Earth lack the neat predictability of celestial mechanics. Since we've made a firm detour into The Economist, and it's, in this case, it's, it's end-of-year uh, summary edition, I can't resist quoting from this essay. It's a piece from Catherine Nixie, who notes that national anthems have fallen behind the times, and the time has come to update them. Noted the piece, national anthems can be tricky, the funeral of Elizabeth II, moved with military sure-footedness in every aspect except one, the singing of the anthem. A nation which has dutifully sung the same words for 70 years hesitated. God save our gracious queen seemed wrong. Clearly, it was a bit late for that. But God save our gracious king felt inappropriate too. She was still lying there after all. The piece notes that the coronation of King Charles III, which will take place in May, is a perfect opportunity for updates. And Britain's is not the only anthem that could do with a little editing. Many were written in the 19th century, few champion equality and diversity, as modern minds might wish, and an improbably large number drip with blood. Consider the anthem of the contested region of western Sahara. With its bright F major key and jolly marching rhythm, it encourages patriots to cut off the head of the invader, and not just once, but twice. Which is surely the very definition of overkill. Meanwhile, the Vietnamese anthem assures its people that the path to glory is paved with the corpses of our enemies. The children's verse in the Marseillaise encourages French infants to die like their elders and share their coffins rather than accept defeat. Notes the piece this mingles suicidal ideation with a touch of historical revisionism. The French having a bit of a track record of preferring defeat to death. Well, we have to agree with Catherine Nixie. It's time to revise quite a few national anthems, including America's. Good Lord, can't we do better than the Star-Spangled Banner? A rather bad poem affixed to a German drinking song. And speaking of the rocket's red glare, we're not quite ready to weigh in on uh, the wisdom, or, or, or lack of it, in sending ever more powerful weapons to Ukraine to use against Russia. There'll be time to talk about that, we think, in the year to come. When we do that, we're also going to, want to take a look back at 1932 and how it was that the famine in Ukraine was misreported or not reported. We hope you caught our uh, lecture, re-aired lecture on last week's program, addressing that very topic. But if you're a listener to this program, and we hope that you are a regular listener, You would note that one of our recurring themes is how major stories are misreported in the media and how it is that uh, certain investigator journalists are are true heroes in digging out the data that the public really should have and sometimes doesn't get. I had a surprising chat with a couple of friends uh, yesterday on the issue of TWA Flight 800. They both seemed quite surprised to learn that the official story that uh, Boeing 747s just occasionally will spontaneously explode was, in fact, poppycock. One expressed a sentiment that it was hard to imagine that there could be a cover-up when so many people would have to know about it, to which I would say, well, yeah, it isn't always a slam dunk, but if it could be done, and it was done in the case of TW800, There's so much more that, um, by comparison, is easy to cover up. Mr. Mill likes to cite two words, Manhattan Project. I've heard the argument made by people that, you know, conspiracies or, or things that are hidden will generally get uncovered with time. My answer to that is, how can it be then that 400 years later, we're still buying into the fact that this illiterate grain merchant and actor from Stratford-on-Avon, wrote the works of William Shakespeare. And if you haven't heard some of our spirited discussions on that, dear listener, we would refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com. But one current example we could cite and will cite of how it is the mainstream media is not adequately covering an important news story would center on the Delta Tunnels here in California. The Sacramento News and Review has an excellent uh, piece on recent developments down in Hood, California where numerous residents turned out to discuss what was going on down there. The piece by Scott Thomas Anderson notes that there is haunting memories of eminent domain which came back to light as the Department of Water Resources sets its sights on Sacramento County properties. Now there is some reporting, very little reporting, on the crowd that gathered in the Delta town of Hood on December 6th. The News Review notes that Mark Massoni showed up. He'd grown up in Clifton Court a section of the estuary that's south of Discovery Bay. His family had farmed down there from the 50s into the 60s until 1967 when everything changed. The Masoni family learned the meaning of the word eminent domain. The California Department of Water Resources, or DWR, was suddenly telling the Masoni family that it would be seizing their farm to build what became known as the Clifton Court Forbay. Massoni noted, they brought in their big drilling rigs and my dad tried to kick them out and they said, you can't kick us out. And now in 2021, the DWR is encroaching on lands down in the Delta for experimental drilling, which is the very precursor that Massoni's father had noticed 55 years earlier just prior to disaster. While the state-sanctioned trespassing a half century before was to construct a forebay, the recent activity is part of DWR's 41-year effort to create a massive conveyance system that would move fresh water out of the North Delta and transport it to central and southern utility districts, largely to the benefit of billion dollar agro corporations. The guy that's been all over this story is our friend Dan Bocker, and I think we're, uh, rather than quote more from this piece, which is excellent and we recommend it highly in the News and Review, we'll bring Dan back on to talk about what the hell's really going on down in the Delta. As Dan has reported, On this show, among other places, the Delta smelt, formerly the keystone species of the entire ecosystem, has disappeared. None have been found for several years in a row. The fisheries that make up this whole ecosystem are going to crash as water is taken out of the Delta and shipped down to agribusiness interests. And if you want to keep supplying these uh, giant corporations that are the farmers in California these days, including the wonderful company, which recently made a very extensive donation to UC Davis, if you're going to keep them in business and you're going to keep building houses out in the desert, in Riverside County, places like Moreno Valley, you're going to have to steal water from somewhere. And if the fish all die, well, tough. I find this disturbingly reminiscent of Ukraine circa 1931. And you may have heard that Joe Biden recently released quite a few files related to the JFK assassination, but uh, you'd be misinformed. But I think I'm going to put that off till our our next segment to talk about that in a little more detail. And dear listener, if you've been paying attention to reporting coming out of Georgia about the, the turnout that put Ralph Warnock back in the Senate, Well, you've been misinformed about that too. We're going to also defer that to the next segment. And one thing we assume you have not been misinformed about because we know we've informed you on this very program is the fact that sometime this year, India is going to surpass China as the world's most populous nation. The UN is guessing that that will happen somewhere around April 14th of 2023. When India's population will reach One billion four hundred and twenty-six million. That's a story we'll be returning to in 2023. And in a comedy relief story emanating from China, which we will close with, we have this: a 50-year-old Chinese man became the toast of the nation's social media after he was photographed chain-smoking his way through a marathon. Yes, apparently Chen Bangzhan completed the Xinjiang Marathon in just under 3.5 hours, an hour faster than the average worldwide finishing time. Chen also ran marathons in 2018 and 2019, and his ability to puff away while running 26 miles has his fellow runners dub him Uncle Chen and Smoking Brother. Here at Radio Parallax, we do counsel you not to smoke while running a marathon, or for that matter, anything else Let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.